0: interested in learning about wine, but not sure where to start, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Cork & Fizz Guide to Wine podcast. I'm your host, Haley Bullman, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm a wine enthusiast turned wine educator and founder of the Seattle-based wine tasting business, Cork & Fizz. It is my goal to build your confidence in wine by making it approachable and lots of fun. You can expect to learn everything from how to describe your favorite wine to what to pair with dinner tonight, and so much more. Whether you're a casual wine sipper or a total cork dork like myself, this podcast is for you. So grab yourself a glass and let's dive in. Today, I'll be chatting with Jane Lopes. Jane is a Nashville based sommelier, author, and importer. She has worked at New York's Eleven Madison Park, Nashville's The Catbird Seat, Chicago's The Violet Hour, and most recently as the wine director at Attica, one of Australia's most celebrated restaurants. Jane was featured on Esquire Network's 2015 television series Uncorked, which follows six New York City sommeliers in pursuit of the master sommelier title, which Jane attained in 2018. In September of 2019, Jane finally put her University of Chicago literature degree to good use. She published her first book, A Personal and Educational Guide to Wine, called Vignette, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles. Later in 2020, Jane and her husband, Jonathan Ross, co-founded their own Australian wine imports company called Legend. Jane's second book, How to Drink Australian, which was co-authored with her husband, published in September of 2023. Now, before we get into this very exciting interview, there's like too much to cover in one interview, but we're going to try it. I just want to give you a quick reminder, if you are not on my mailing list yet, I would love for you to join. When you do, you will get a free shopping guide that has 15 of my favorite wines under $15. You can head to corkandfizz.com, scroll down to the bottom, and there's a little section to join the mailing list. I send out a weekly newsletter filled with wine tips, recommendations, special offers, and more. And of course, be sure to check out my virtual tasting club. If you are not a member yet, you should be. Everybody listening to this podcast should be in the Cork Crew. We get together every month. We try new wines and we learn from others in the wine world. So instead of just listening to somebody talk, you get to be there and ask them questions. So head to my website, corkandfiz.com slash crew and use code WINE101 when you sign up to get your first month free. Now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Thank you so much for for joining for the podcast. I was very excited. It's one of those where you're like, kind of throw it out there and like, hey, maybe I'll get a hold of her and it was great. Oh, I appreciate it. Where where are you based? I'm in Seattle. Oh, that's right. That's right. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. West Coast. So
1: yeah, we just started selling some wine into Seattle. So my husband actually has done the two market trips there so far, but hopefully I'll make it there next year.
0: Yay. Okay. We'll have to talk about that. That is one of the things I want to talk about with the import company and, you know, figuring out if there's a way to to try any of those wines, but why don't we start with just like kind of a, I, you know, I do a little intro for you, but I think you tell your story the best. So uh, do you want to share a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah. So my name is Jane Lopes. Thanks so much for having me. Uh so I my kind of full cut, full-time gig these days is that I import Australian wine to the US. Um come from mainly a restaurant background, but worked in wine retail was kind of my first job in wine. I bartended for a few years and then kind of got on the like sommelier wine director path in restaurants. That took me over to Australia. I was the wine director at a restaurant in Melbourne for 3 years and my now husband, then fiance came came with me as as well and we just and he also works in wine. Uh and we just were really blown away by what's going on in Australian wine and really kind of felt like we just we couldn't believe that the US in general and, and us specifically in New York were so kind of oblivious to what was going on in Australia. And we just didn't have the access to the wines. We didn't have the access to educational resources. So yeah, we came back in 2020 and we started importing Australian wine. And you know, we, we also felt like, you know, we needed to help provide that educational resource. So we, we wrote, uh, we wrote a book on Australian wine, which came out earlier this year. This is my second book. I had written a book called vignette in 2019. Yeah. That came out in 19. So yeah. And we're very happy with how that turned out and we just hope it gets, helps get people excited about Australian wine.
0: Yeah. I think that's so cool. I'm very excited to talk to you about that. Cause I agree. I think, you know, when you think about it, even when you go to like the kind of like the wine shops that do explore other areas besides, you know, here in Washington, it's like heavy Washington. And then, you know, you've got California and then you've got France and Italy and like the Australian section is always so small, <laughs> you know, you always want to explore that area. And that honestly is
1: the case almost everywhere. Like there's no, I would say there's no like city or state or region that like does a great job with Australian wine there are individual accounts like there are kind of people who've become like really great champions of Australian wine across the country um and then i have to say Nashville Tennessee is a great market for Australian wine because we live here <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know and so we've been able to have an impact on the city and you know a lot of the buyers know us and and know the wines really well. We have a great relationship with our distributor here. So it makes us feel like if we can make Nashville, Tennessee, a great Australian wine market, that it can really happen anywhere.
0: I like it. Yes, absolutely. So I want to kind of take you back to the very beginning. We'll definitely talk about Australia and definitely need to talk about the books. But what was it that originally sparked your interest in wine? I feel like everybody always has a fun little story of like, what was it that made you realize like wine was what you wanted to get into?
1: Well, you know, I started working in wine because I just needed a job
0: <laughs> i had graduated
1: college i was I had applied to work in the admissions department at at my college and which I was just going to do for a year while I kind of wrote applications for grad schools and I didn't get that job. I was devastated. (laughs) And I just went on Craigslist. I don't know if people still do that to get jobs these days. Probably not. But I went on Craigslist and there was a listing for a wine shop. And I said, that would be fun. And I didn't know really anything about wine. I had... Studied abroad in Rome my junior year in college. And so I had started drinking wine there, but I I knew very, very little. But the woman who hired me, who's still a, a good friend of mine to this day, she she saw something in me, um, obviously, and gave me the job. And, you know, within a few months, I um, really didn't, you know, I never turned in those grad school applications. I really just, it combined for me sort of, you know, I was this like academic person and I liked the idea of being able to sit down and study something, you know? And so wine, of course, gives you plenty to study. But then I also really liked, I'd always loved food and restaurants since I was a kid. And I loved the like sensory aspect of wine. And I thought it was so cool that I could smell and taste something in wine and then connect it to what I was reading, you know, whether it was about The attributes of a particular grape or place or a a particular vintage. And I just thought that was super cool. So when it came down to thinking about spending my 20s in a library or like serving wine, it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty easy decision. So, so yeah, it wasn't sort of one moment, but just really like the areas I had wanted to to sort of study in grad school seemed a lot less a lot less appealing than than studying uh and and of course tasting wine
0: right sure no I love that I think that's it's very similar to at least for me with like in getting into wine it was really like the learning aspect i think it's so cool i'm one of those people that i was one, i was a kid who loved learning like i i made math problems for myself that was like a fun activity you know so like i like but then like you know learning became more about like you have to achieve you have to do well you have to get into a good college and then get a good job and at least for me with wine. Now I didn't go the master smelly route. So maybe a little that felt like that a little bit, but like wine had this idea where it was like, you could just learn. And like you said, you could appreciate that. Like you could smell it and then taste it and then realize like, that's what you were reading about. And it like, it all kind of connected together. Totally. Totally. And I think that sort of real, like, I mean, some
1: people wouldn't say it's practical, but like that practical connection of your experience and your learning
0: is, um, yeah, is, is pretty cool. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit first of your like life as a sommelier and a wine director. Can you tell us about what it was like working at some of the, you know, even starting just in like the top restaurants in, you know, in the US and I know you were in New York and Nashville and then and moving over to Australia. Do you have any favorite moments that kind of stand out to you? You know, I, yeah, I think, you know,
1: for restaurants, for me, it's always about finding like The right fit, you know, the 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 place that the flow of service really works for you. And I actually always really enjoyed working in sort of the tasting menu sort of places, and but did want to stay busy during service. So it was finding those, you know, and Eleven Madison Park is a perfect example where it's, you know, people are doing this long meal. It feels like you should have this like leisurely service, but you're you're busy the whole time. There's always something to do. So you know, I really I love that aspect of it got to serve, you know, I, I think when you work kind of at a high level and not necessarily a high level, like it has to be expensive or fine dining, but just at a, a level where, you know, you're trying to execute great wine service and, and just great restaurant service and great food, you get to encounter all sorts of different... Uh, service situations. And I think those are the sorts of things that make you a great hospitality professional that make you and, and you know, sort of in, in inadvertently prepare you for these exams and stuff too. Like, you know, they'll throw situations like at you in an exam, like, oh, we're an eight top. We want to split this half bottle of champagne and you're like, you know, and you're like, who would ever do that? But then you work in a restaurant and that happens. Like <laughs> you encounter the the strangest service experiences, but it's your job to, you know, roll with it. And and you would say at 11 Madison Park, make it nice. That was sort of the motto there. Um, And you just make it work and you give people the the best experience possible and that you realize is different for for so many people. So yeah, I mean I I don't know if I have any like particular stories. <laughs> I probably do if I think back, but just kind of you stay on your toes, you stay busy. And I've yeah, had the privilege to work in some places that just are creating an incredibly special product.
0: I have to ask, and this is something, it's a question I just thought of now, so I'm sorry I didn't prepare you for this, but it's something that's very interesting to me of like, what do you think it is for sommeliers? Because I find in a lot of places that sommeliers are, you know, people don't always understand like what your role is and don't appreciate the amount of like knowledge and, you know, an effort that goes into doing, you know, being a sommelier and like you said, making it nice, like doing all those things to make like the service perfect. And honestly, you're doing it well, if I don't notice, because that's the whole point, right? Of like making it, making it great. But like, I feel like it'd be such a, it'd be a challenging role to be in of like a little bit of being underappreciated or like the amount of effort that goes into studying and, and being in that position. Do you think there's something that like is similar kind of across sommeliers that like drives them to still to do that and, and what it is that like kind of is that passion behind it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like my—I really started out in in wine. You know, I started out in wine retail. My husband started out working, uh, you know, in restaurants, and he's been everything from a dishwasher to a busser to a server to a manager. And so for him, wine was just this sort of hook that allowed him to have something. Really fun to study and kind of latch onto. In the beginning, it was something that allowed him to make wine or make wine, <laughs> make money. Um, he he realized that if you know he could sell tables, nice bottles of wine instead of a few beers and a cocktail, he could make more money on those tables, uh, and just another lens to be able to provide hospitality through. And I think that, you know, I think that the people who work in wine, you know, I, I would hope all kind of share just a, a love of wine and just think it is this amazing tool to make your meal taste better, to make your experience richer. And it's just a, another way to, you know, be able to give people a, a portion of of their meal and their restaurant experience to engage with, right? And that was something I discovered at, really at Attica in Australia, was that people loved, I always knew that people loved doing the pairings. And I kind of realized at Attica that it wasn't even about like, always about the wine or about having alcohol, that it was just about having something further, a further level to engage with. And so we actually started doing these like half non-alcoholic, half alcoholic pairings at Attica because a lot of people would say you know like oh i did the pairings last time and ooh it was just too much for me but they still love the you know they loved having someone come visit the table with every course and tell them about the beverage and talk about how it paired with the food or what was so special about it and then have this extra layer when they're actually eating the food and drinking the beverage with it that you know, we realized here are people who would love to do pairings and want to have some amount of alcohol, but just don't want to have, you know, the full, you know, whatever it is, 10 half glasses or something. So we did like basically every other course was alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And we sold a ton of them because it's the people who would have just gotten a glass or two throughout the meal and great for the restaurant financially in terms of like having someone do a pairing, but also just great for them you gave them what they wanted and so you know i just think wine provides this extra layer to be able to offer engagement offer hospitality and so i think wine professionals i think really appreciate that aspect you know i don't think you can work in a restaurant if you don't if you don't appreciate the hospitality aspect if if you just love wine you probably shouldn't be in a restaurant you know
0: <laughs> No, that makes sense. I love that idea that I've never heard of that before, but like it makes total sense of like the idea of like the, you know, some some wine, some non-alcoholic and, and doing a mix of that. Because you're so right. Like when I think of some of my favorite dining experiences, it's because somebody comes and like, you know, comes over and like introduces you to the dish and tells you kind of the idea behind it. And then here's what we're pairing it with. And let me tell you a little bit more about that. And and like you said, it it makes it, such a well-rounded and and like really incredible experience that it's memorable but yeah if I'm doing a big pairing I you know by the time I get to the last wine, I don't remember it as well as I remember the first one
1: I know I'm always very impressed by people who are like come in have a cocktail do pairings have a whiskey (laughs) afterwards I'm like good for you man I would be on the floor
0: no, I feel that. Well, so talking about kind of unique pairings, uh, I did want to call out some unique things you did in Nashville when you were working previously, right, before the Australian move. I think I read it in your book where you would you had like a, a slightly limited list of wines. And so when you were doing food pairings, you you got a little creative. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I had moved from Chicago to Nashville and so, you know, I was pretty used to having kind of a, a really wide selection of of wines at my fingertips in in Chicago. And so, um in Nashville, you know, at the time, there just wasn't quite the same access. There just wasn't wasn't the same distribution for wine in Nashville it was pretty limited. And so, you know, I would have in in this was a tasting menu and typically uh, you know, a handful of dishes would change every single week. The cooks were kind of constantly, the chefs were constantly creating new dishes. So, um, you know, they would tell me like on a Saturday, like here's the this dish that's going to go on next week. And I would have an idea in my head of like, oh, I would love that that wine would go so well. Like I'm thinking of a, an example. There was this like sort of like vinegary, like pulled pork dish that was just really amazing. And I would thought of like the wines of Frank Cornelison in Sicily, these kind of like somewhat volatile red wines from Sicily. And those weren't available in Nashville at the time. So, you know, I, what I would typically do is like on a Monday, I would send emails out to my distributors with what I was looking for. I would taste wines on Tuesday and I would order them for Wednesday when the new dishes would go on. And so I tasted some Sicilian wine and none was kind of quite right. And I was like, you know, what if I added like a sour beer to this wine? It would achieve the flavor profile I'm looking for. And so I ended up doing a fair number of things like that. Like I had rosé champagne with sake and I had tokai in a glass rinsed with bourbon. There were lots more that are escaping my mind now. but you know it it became this really fun thing we you know our regular guests would kind of expect it they like really loved it and i think you know it was again that just extra layer of engagement where it was like i think people clearly felt someone behind the scenes was really cared and really working hard to make these special and instead of just having like here's a couple white wines here's a couple red wines you know really sort of the first time I like I, there was one course where I pour sake into people's Riesling glasses and, you know, people kind of like sit up in their seat and be like, what are you what are you doing? What's going on? And just, yeah, and, and uh, it served kind of the dual. It, I started doing it to achieve the best pairing, but I kept doing it and was, felt motivated to continue to do it because because the guests seemed to really love it and just thought it was something, yeah, interesting, unique. So so yeah, and and we actually there are uh, a handful of of things we did at EMP like that, and I brought broth, the sake, and riesling to Attica, and so yeah, I mean I you know I'm not particularly precious about wine. I mean, in some ways I am, I suppose, but I don't think it's like this sacred thing that it's like heresy to like do anything besides just like drink it at the perfect temperature in the perfect glass right out of the bottle you know there's uh why not have a little fun with it and so yeah so that was a yeah fun a fun era in my life
0: (laughs) I think it's so cool it's such a good reminder yeah I always like to say like yeah you can take wine seriously in terms of like you know when you're learning about it and like it means a lot like I always like to search small producers or search like take that part seriously but in the end like it's meant to be fun you're meant to enjoy it like it's it's okay to just to have some fun with it (laughs) Totally. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your first book. That's how I first was introduced to you. I, I have the vignette, uh, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles. I'm a huge fan. I love that it's, it's amazing wine education. I mean, I read this a few years ago, and it's one of the only, like, wine education books that I've read, like, cover to cover because it not only, like had education but had this story and was enticing. And then I was just like flipping through it again today and I found the page with like Shannon Blancs that you compare to like different famous women <laughs> and uh different actors. I'm like, this is this is genius. <laughs> like this makes me understand this so well. So I I want to just super quick talk about what inspired you to write the book.
1: So I had studied English literature in college and kind of done a fair amount of both creative and analytical writing. So I had that background. I, you know, I loved, you know, writing tasting notes for my wine shop. So I, you know, I I continued writing, but, you know, didn't quite know exactly how I, I didn't think I wanted to be like a wine writer per se, you know, but I had done an interview with the alumni magazine for university of Chicago. And I got, I had a guy reach out to me on, Twitter, <laughs> uh, when I had an active Twitter account and he was a literary agent who had gone to U of C and who'd read my article. And he reached out and he said, you have an interesting story. You should write a book. And he was in New York at the time. So we met up for coffee. And, you know, his idea was kind of that I do like a kitchen confidential style, like tell all of the wine industry, which I didn't want to write that book, but I did. It was sort of the impetus for me to be like, yeah, I could write a book. And I don't know exactly how the format came to me, but I felt like my life wasn't interesting enough to write like a full on memoir. And I felt like, my wine knowledge wasn't specific or great enough to like do just a plain old educational book. (laughs) And I thought my kind of, you know, my contribution to sort of the world of wine literature could be this sort of combination of, of life and wine, you know, of providing a narrative that shows that wine can be a really, Beautiful and meaningful and emotionally connected part of your life. And that extends for me, both in terms of my experience, sort of like drinking wines at important moments in my life and my studies of wine, which, you know, was sort of interconnected with it all. So came up with this idea to basically have uh, each chapter be kind of devoted to a style of wine. And somehow throughout that story in my life, I interact with that style of wine. And then yeah, the after the chapter would be this sort of educational, you know, a a brief uh, piece of education on that style. And, and I wanted it my, my thing with wine is like, how do we make it fun without dumbing it down? Because I think you always risk if you're just going to be like, wine's fun and let's compare it to famous women, you know, is that just like totally dumbing it down? And I wanted to find how how can this be fun, engaging, provide sort of like entry points for people who are not super familiar with wine, but also be sort of like actually say something, right? Actually have something to say about those styles and to teach about those styles. And so that was the challenge for me. And so some chapters were a bit more sort of frivolous and some were a bit more serious, but I think for all of them, my hope was that both the wine expert and the wine novice could leave those pieces of education feeling like they thought about it in a new way, you know, or learned something.
0: Yeah. And, and I, and I think it goes to show too, that like everybody learns slightly differently. Right. So like, you know, your your section, like, the yeah, the famous ladies of, like, talking about the different Chenin Blancs, you know, of everywhere, and, like, that, to me, like, that connects for me. I'm just like, okay, that makes total sense now, because, like, I love Chenin Blanc, and I'll pick it up in most places, but, like, if someone were to ask me, like, what's the difference between this one in the Loire Valley and this one, I'd be like, eh. I don't really know, right. So now I can be like, well, here's the thing. One of them's like a Jennifer Lawrence because it's this. <laughs> that's right. So like i like I, I totally understand what you're saying of like you still want to like get that that information across and not simplify it too much. But I also think it's great that you can, you know, you can educate in a way that's slightly different and might connect with different people, like you said, of both the wine novice and the expert and everybody in between.
1: Yeah, because even let's say you have the like perfect technical answer to that question of like, well, in Bouvray, these are the soil types and the conditions which create wines that have this element or whatever. And Traditionally, these are the styles that like that was like going straight over so many people's heads, you know, Um, where if you can have have something you can say that like makes it feel accessible and also makes it feel like, oh, I don't have to like have memorized a million different things and know what the exact weather conditions were for this vintage in order to enjoy wine, you know, because I think there is that intimidation factor where people are just like, oh, I don't know, I'll have a beer.
0: right it's like one of those things in the world that like people feel like they're afraid to admit they don't know anything about if they haven't studied it and it's one of those it's just it's amazing because I'm just like well of course of course you don't know anything about it I I don't know one thing about how to play basketball because I've never played basketball and I've never tried so like why would anybody expect me to be great on the court like you're not expected to know anything about wine but then like you said yeah it's even like you have to start where people are at, and so that they can, you know, learn learn as they go. Uh, before we get to the import company, I do just want to talk a little bit about in the book. Uh, one of the major storylines is your, you know, pursuit of the master sommelier and your education. Can you tell us a bit more about what that journey was like for you?
1: Yeah, I, you know, as someone who was going to go get like a PhD, I really liked the idea of of structured education. And of course, the CMS doesn't provide a ton of education, but it is structured kind of self-education in a way. Um, and that was fine with me. Like I was always sort of self-motivated learner. And so this kind of gave me a goal. You know, I took the first level, I think in 09, a few other women who worked at the wine shop I was at were going to take it. So went and, went and did it. And then as I started to get into restaurants, it felt like, okay, this is sort of the world I'm in. and. Here's a way to connect with other people in this world and, you know, learn more and expand my horizons. And, you know, I've just met so many great people over the years through the tasting groups and the study groups that I've been in. And so I love, you know, I love, I love that aspect. And I hope we never lose that aspect in the wine industry. Cause I think it's really an awesome thing because we don't have these like Sort of, you know, there's not a lot of formal education. I never went through WSET. I, I think they're probably doing the best job of providing some formal education structure. But it's always, you know, great to sort of form groups with the people around you who are kind of all on the same path of of trying to learn learn more and and you know further our knowledge and education in this arena. So, so yeah, I took certified, I think in 2012, I was living in Nashville and I drove up to Cincinnati to take it. And then I also was starting to do some of like the competitions with Guildsom and Shanda Rotasur, which were always like really nerve wracking, but also really fun and good practice for the exams that were, you know, nerve wracking. And, and then I, yeah, I moved to New York in early January, uh, J- January of 2020. 20, 2013 not twenty twenty, anything. Uh, twenty thirteen, and you know, was really introduced to some great tasting groups, study groups, and really loved sort of the the culture around around the studying and around the test taking. That's you know, met my husband and now husband in a, a tasting group. So yeah, and then you know, I so I passed advanced. In 2013, I was the last year where like you could do the course and the exam all in one week, <laughs> which I, I think it's a smart move to to move to, to breaking it up because it, it was a little much. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to sit in a course for three days when you just want to like get the test over with. And... Then I kind of put together a very serious study schedule for taking the MS in 2015. I started working at EMP in late 2014, with, which definitely, in a way, sort of slowed down my studies just because I was dedicating so much time to becoming proficient at the restaurant, learning all the, you know, not even the wine list. In fact, like that was sort of the least of what I was studying in the beginning. It was like learning all the food and the ingredients and learning all the sort of service standards and, and, you know, kind of everything about the restaurant. Like you're expected to know who the architect of the restaurant is and who made the chairs and the PDR. I'm not, not kidding. I guess.
0: I mean, I imagine if you're like going into a nice restaurant and you you know, you'd expect like, you you know, I could, I would imagine there'd be some people be like, oh, who's the architect here? And like, you, 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 you gotta know that. Hundred percent, and
1: you know, in the beginning, it like really it felt kind of silly. And I think the chairs in the PDR were kind of a joke that we were supposed to know that. (laughs) But everyone learned them, even if you never worked in the private dining room. And they were, I think, they were nice chairs. But you know, people ask people ask questions all the time that you you know wouldn't expect. People asking who makes the cutlery, like, what are the four leaves and the logo for 11 Madison Park, like all of those sorts of things people would ask every single night all the time. And yeah, you really you want to present yourself as someone who is not only knowledgeable, but like invested in the restaurant like you care. And I did. And I appreciated them like laying out all of those expectations in terms of what what to learn. But, but so yeah, so in the short term, that kind of, delayed my studies a little bit and I ended up not passing theory in 2015 but in the long term it made me such a better wine professional working there gave me such a great you know great just practical knowledge of the great wines of the world you know it's such a it's such a rare opportunity to be able to oh yeah I've opened whatever it is 1985 DRC LaTche not that that happens Every night, but we had Chateau de Chem by the glass. And so you'd, you know, it's just it, when you're able to talk about these wines, have opened them, you know, know the vintages, know what they taste like. It, I mean, it's just such an amazing education. So, yeah, I took 16 off from testing. I was planning to go back at 17, but then I got this job offer to work in Australia. So I spent the next year you know, acclimating to my new job in Australia. And then yeah, went back in 2018 and took and passed all three sections. So for me, I I the process was was great overall. I don't think it's I don't think it's for everybody. And I think there are hundreds and hundreds of great wine professionals who never took those exams or don't do well in those exams. So you know, I think And and I think now more than ever, there's kind of more of a acceptance of like, you don't, there's not just this one pathway to show, you know, your capability in the wine industry. So, you know, I hope everyone... You know, now we can all sort of just like look at the options out there for education, for certification, um, and everyone can kind of make the decisions that are are right for them, um, and that may be CMS and it may not be. Um, and I think, yeah, I think we have uh, we're we're growing towards a really enlightened wine industry that we're able to sort of you know see some of see some of these issues with with some of the certifying bodies and, and, you know, go into things like this with like a, a level head and a great perspective. And yeah, I don't, I don't regret my time in the organization, but I certainly don't think it's for everybody.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, even listening to all the things you did, I'm like, yeah, I know that that will never be me. I will never. <laughs> 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 like hand, you know, hats off to those that like you know that can do it but like you said yeah and it also depends on you know what you're what you're interested in like the cms quartermaster sommeliers makes sense for those that might do more serving right i know i probably will never land in a restaurant <laughs> again uh, but that doesn't mean i don't you know love learning about wine and, and choose to take a different route so i couldn't agree more i think the idea that you can learn and because that's a cool thing about wine like you said so much of it is self-study so you can you don't have to do some you don't have to pay for a certification you don't you know you can go I mean the first time I started learning about wine I just checked out every book that I could find at the library and there there were quite a few so yeah. and that was all I needed to start learning yeah totally do you ever find yourself standing in front of the wine aisle at the grocery store feeling completely lost and overwhelmed don't worry you're not alone but what if I told you that I have a way to transform the wine aisle from overwhelming to into an endless sea of joy and discovery. And it involves drinking wine and joining the most welcoming and fun community. In my Court Crew Virtual Tasting Club, we're all about exploring new and exciting wines in a fun and supportive community. No more feeling intimidated or stuck in a rut of buying the same bottle of wine. Each month, we explore two new wines so you can broaden your palate and explore new flavors. Not only will we taste these wines together, but we'll learn about where the wines come from, essentially traveling the world all through the wine in our glass. Come join the Court crew and you'll have the opportunity to taste new wines, meet winemakers and other wine professionals, and connect with like-minded wine lovers from all over the world. Imagine the joy of discovering a new favorite wine and being able to confidently choose a bottle that you know you'll love. So why not join us? Head to my website at corkinfizz.com slash crew to sign up. And don't forget to use code WINE101 to get your first month free. And now, back to the show. Okay. I want to take the rest of the podcast and talk about Australian wine, because like you said, that is not out there enough. And you, you know, I, your, your book is already on my Christmas list because I need to learn more about Australian wine. Uh, but let's talk first about the import company legend. What, I mean, you kind of already talked a little bit about, was there anything else that you haven't mentioned on like what inspired it and also like the name, what, what inspired the, the name legend for the import company?
1: So, in Australia legends like a very common term of endearment so like if someone opens the door for you you'd be like ah oh, thanks legend if someone gets you a coffee you're like ah oh, you're a legend like i remember i would send in to my d- distributors i worked with i'd send them orders at the end of the week for the following week and like at least half of them would reply like thanks legend And my husband came home from work one day and he was like, does everybody call you a legend? I'm like, yeah, what's the deal? And it's just this like really sort of nice really earnest sort of thing and so we thought it was you know a great name for the company cuz the tie in with sort of the the Australian vernacular but also you know we do think all of these producers are legends in their own right and you know really deserve a place in sort of the the best wine programs in the United States so yeah that was that's was behind the name legend you know we have about Thirty producers in our portfolio from regions all over Australia. Our goal is really to showcase kind of the entirety of what Australia is doing. So it's not, you know, a certain style or grape or region. You know, we have things that look kind of very traditional, like warm climate reds, like Barossa Shiraz. We have things that look very untraditional, like a few different pet nats, skin contact. We have a A Kevri Age Saparavi, (laughs) a Georgian grape aged in a Georgian clay amphora that's buried under the ground. So we have, yeah, we kind of just do everything. We really, our whole thing was, well, one, we want to work with good people who care about each other and who care about the land and who care about their customers at the end of the day. And we wanted to only bring wines over that were going to showcase something different in the world of wine because why bring a wine halfway around the world that tastes exactly like something else? So that was those were sort of our criteria. And a lot of producers fit that criteria. We would there's definitely a handful of producers we would absolutely love to add to the portfolio, but we're trying to be a little prudent and just make sure we get our current producers sort of as widely distributed as they want um, before we, we add any new guys on. But yeah, there's just a, a a sea of amazing wine in Australia. And someday I hope that we talk about Australian wine in the way that we that we talk about French wine, you know, that it's not just like no one says, Oh, I could use a few more French wines on my list. They say, Oh, my Bordeaux select section is light, or Oh, I really need some red burgundy or whatever it is. It's not this whole like lumped into one. So I want, you know, in five, 10, 20 years, however long it takes, I want people to say like, Oh, my Adelaide Hills section is really light. I really need a few more producers or, or whatever it is. You know, there are 65 different GIs, different wine regions in Australia and. I would say two thirds of those are pretty significant. Like it's not like just a handful. It's really most of them are pretty significant. So, you know, we just want, we want people to be able to appreciate it all. Yeah,
0: I'm curious. So yeah, when people think of Australian wine, I think typically what comes to mind is like Barossa Shiraz, I think I've heard of like Hunter Valley, Semillon is maybe like, those are like the two that usually are like, I'll find somewhere or find something on, or maybe some Sauvignon Blanc now too. Are there any that like, let's say I'm like, if I, you know, a lot of my wine shops around here, if I ask for something, they'll try to look for it and ask a distributor. So like, there any styles of wine like kind of region grape or stuff that like you think people should ask for or start asking for so then you know more of it gets (laughs) brought around
1: yeah I think my number one would have to be Grenache I think Australian Grenache is across the board almost universally great right now there's a lot of mature vine material whether it's in Barossa McLaren Vale, Swan Valley in Western Australia has a lot of great grenache, a few regions of Victoria, there's just a lot of of great grenache plantings and then stylistically Australian grenache has moved in a direction where it's just a little bit more a little bit of a lighter touch. You know, I think if you think about what classic Australian grenache looks like, you might be thinking about something that's like 16 plus percent alcohol Pretty heavy, rich, sometimes oak, sometimes quite dark fruited. And now people, you know, people are even calling it like the warm climate Pinot Noir, you know, that it's capable of making these really sort of elegant red fruited wines, even in warm climates, and particularly in warm climates. So honestly, whenever I see Australian Grenache hanging around, I order it. Like when we were back in Australia, I'd say, 50% 50% of what we drank was Australian Grenache just because I was really excited to try new producers of it and and producers I hadn't had before. So that's one that I'm, yeah, hoping become sort of the next really recognizable thing. Because to be honest, I think it's more consistent and a better value and a better expression in many cases than kind of classic Spanish, French Grenache. Yeah, I think it's it's really great. But I think the other ones I would probably say Italian grape varieties in Australia. I've right seen, some,
0: I've seen more. Like, I one of the wine shops near around here had like three different Australian bottles, each with like a different Italian variety, and I was like, "What? Cool. That's what?" Do you remember the producer? <sighs> I don't. It was a little while back. I'll I'll look it up later and email you. But yeah, it was like a and then because they weren't even like the top Italian varietals either. They were kind of lesser known Italian ones, and I was just. Yeah, I was I was very surprised.
1: Yeah, we work with a producer who's one of the main importers of Italian vine material into Australia. Okay. They started in the 90s and they brought in grapes, and it was, you know, it's interesting. They, it's the Chalmers family, and they really didn't come at it from even a wine perspective. It was really from a farming perspective. So it wasn't like the conversation was I like Brunello, we should bring in Sangiovese, the conversation was, well, viticulturally, Fiano is a grape that's going to work really well for our vineyards. So they ended up bringing in, really, I mean, they have brought in everything from like Fiano, Neridavilla, Falangina, Pecorino, Schiopatino, but like some really obscure ones too, like Pavana, Noziola. And it's just because they knew that those, based on their research, that those grapes would work well. So it's become very common. Australia, after Italy, of course, has more plantings of Italian grapes than anywhere else in the world. And it's just so fun from an educational perspective to be able to taste these wines because we as wine professionals have been able to taste Chardonnay or Cabernet or Pinot Noir from all over the world. And so we're able to have these intelligent conversations about what's the grape itself and what's terroir elements and what's winemaking and how are those three things interacting to make a unique expression where for some grapes, we just haven't had that opportunity. You know, you can't, you're not like, well, the eight different countries I've had Nero Avila from, it's like, no, right. um, probably only had it from one island. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in italy and so it's it's really really cool to just it, it really expanded my horizons in terms of like getting to know grape in place of things that i had been you know drinking for years from italy so and i just think the quality is really great and there's just really good attention right now to let's instead of planting the grape that we're supposed to plant or the grape that is popular let's plant the grapes that are most well suited to our land and even if that's Noziola.
0: <laughs> and then then shall be it noziola. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Super fun. Okay. So with along with the import company, like you said, you wrote a book about Australian wines, which I imagine would be the easiest way for people to start learning more about these Australian wines and then hopefully start asking about them. So it's called How to Drink Australian. I'm curious about just uh like what kind of style is it in in terms of like, you know, educational. Does it is it similar to your first book where there's more story? Like, how did you guys yeah, tell me a little bit more about the book. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it is a little bit more of a straightforward reference book than certainly than my first book. We really wanted this to be sort of the go-to place to learn about Australian wine. So it's divided up by region. So like the first chapter is New South Wales. So then Hunter Valley has its own chapter. And then like Southern New South Wales is a zone that we cover all the regions. Together, So that's Canberra District, Hilltops, Gundagai, and uh, Tambarumba. And then Central Ranges, which is also a zone, gets its own chapter. And then the remaining regions that don't kind of get their own chapter, we have like an other other New South Wales part. And in each of those sections, we do an introduction where we just sort of, you know, kind of lay out some major ideas. We do a section called Evolution of Wine. Where we talk about history kind of leading up to today, you know what I don't like about a lot of wine history is it kind of a lot of times feels like the very beginning and then like doesn't like bring you through to the changes that happen to to arrive at the modern day. And then lay of the land is the third section, which is all the sort of, Geographic terroir elements, the you know the soil type and elevation and and all those sorts of things that and and what grapes and styles end up being produced because of that. And then we end each section uh we end each chapter with a section called hubbub, um which the idea for that is like what what are people like actually talking about? what are they concerned about? what are they excited about? what's like actually going on on the ground? And that always say like, if you are just like an enthusiast or just wanting to get like a good overview, you could read the introduction and the hubbub and be like really good. And then if you want to dive deeper, you can kind of, you can go into lay of the land and, or, and uh, evolution of wine. And then each chapter has producer profiles afterwards. So we profile a handful, uh, sometimes uh, several handfuls of producers in each region. And then there's a, a regional map for each region. We worked with an amazing cartographer who created original maps and they're just like, they're stunning. They're gorgeous. And they're so detailed. Like there are zero detailed Australian wine maps out there. So it's just like, how do we expect people to learn about Australian wine when you can't find out, you know, where Vinevale is a subregion of the Barossa, mm-hmm. on a map, you know? And so, so yeah, that was a a really important piece of the puzzle. And then there's some really beautiful photography and illustrations and artwork and the design. I, I love how it turned out. Like everything really came together beautifully. And I think it's like, yeah, we want it to be a great study, study resource, but also like, something that you know if you're going to go on a trip to Australia and just wanted like some overviews of the wine regions or even like just as a pretty coffee table book i think it's um i think it can work for a number of different audiences
0: cool it sounds wonderful like i said definitely on the christmas list i think like you said cuz it's like a a new area too cuz yeah i we learn all these things about french wine and and even the french regions and i don't really know much at all about australia so it'll be totally new So many
1: like very significant wine regions in Australia that the US just doesn't have access to practically any wines from them, you know, and we just were kind of shocked of like, yeah, you can find Barossa wines, McLaren Vale wines, Hunter Valley wines, maybe a few Yarra Valley wines, depending on your market, but and maybe a few Margaret River. But after that, like it really, you know, it's like there's so many great wines from Gippsland and Adelaide Hills and Beechworth and like all these regions that are just so poorly represented in the United States. So, so we're trying, we're trying to change that.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to hear that you were, you've already made a stop in Seattle, at least selfishly for me. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I look forward to seeing more Australian wines around here. Yeah.
1: So we, yeah, we have a distributor in Seattle. So the wines are around. So if you ask a retailer for wines imported by Legend, they can find us.
0: Okay, I love it. Yeah, because just for those listening in case, uh, you know, I the import distribution process is a little confusing in the U.S. And I don't want to spend too much time because I want to make sure we get to our last little speed round here. But the uh, way I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like you import wines from another country into the U.S. So for you guys, it's Australia. Then you sell to a distributor who then distributes the wine essentially to wine shops or to whoever the retailer is. And then that's where folks like us can go then buy the wine so the best way to like get the wines that you guys are importing is to ask your retailer for you know these styles of wines and mention you guys as an importer
1: yeah exactly and sometimes like people will find our producers and then send them an email and then they'll send it to us so usually there's a way of of us connecting the dots and finding people but yeah we we don't there are some importers that directly distribute, but it just takes a lot of, a ton of resources. I mean, imagine we're, it's just the two of us. Like if we were going to self-distribute in one state, let alone many states, we would have to have like warehousing and trucking set up. We'd have to have sales reps who are intimately, uh, you know, knowledgeable of, of all of the accounts in the area. It would just be, you know, it'd be another level in terms of of our business. Which is not to say it's off the table one day, but you know, there's really great value in working with a great distributor because they, you know, they have the intimate knowledge of their market and they can sort of get the wines in the right places for you.
0: Definitely okay. I'll be on the lookout for those, and I'll definitely ask around. Uh, so we've come to the last bit of a little interview. I call it my little speed round. I don't, doesn't mean you have to like answer really fast. There's no timer or anything. It's basically the idea of like, don't think about it too much. Just go with the first thing that comes to mind. Because I think for these questions, you could have multiple answers uh, depending on the time. So the first one is, what is your favorite wine at the moment? I
1: mean, I don't want to be a broken record, but probably Australian Grenache.
0: I mean, if it's
1: good, it's good, right? you want like a one wine or do you want... No,
0: no, style is perfectly fine. Yeah, Australian Grenache will definitely... Now I'm like, yeah, definitely need to look for that. Okay, how about... I feel like I'm very, I might know part of the answer to this. What is your favorite wine region that you've ever visited?
1: Well, I'll take Australia out of it because... Okay, okay, I love that place, but... there be a lot, but probably... I mean, take your pick of regions in Germany. Yeah, probably like Naha or Mosul in Germany. Just spectacular. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, How about a wine region you would like to visit? Uh, South Africa. That was one on, I did an interview earlier today that like, that was her favorite region that she's visited. So top top marks for it. (laughs) Uh, How about favorite wine and food pairing?
1: You know, I think just something really simple, probably from my time in Italy, I would say like Chianti Classico and like a bowl of red sauce pasta. (laughs) Yes.
0: Keep it simple. It's delicious. All right. And then last question for anybody who's trying to kind of shop on a budget, but wants to, you know, have a good quality wine. What like either you can say a specific bottle or a style, like best bottle of wine under $15.
1: Yeah, I think 15 is sort of these days, the point at which it's sort of like getting below 15 is, is hard for like, for great wine. But I think there are certain styles that are more applicable to being kind of can be kind of really tasty when they're less expensive. Chianti Classico is a great example, or Chianti, you can get some really good affordable bottles. Grenache in general, I think, can be done well at a more affordable price point, like a Cote de Rhone or a Spanish Grenache or Australian Grenache, of course. Where else do I go? You know, we do have a few wines in our portfolio that hit around that price point. We have a, a Cabernet that normally Cabernet is not something I think about in sort of that value price range, but it's an unoaked style that's just like really bright, juicy, a little bit savory. That's really, really good called Sunspell. And then the Chalmers family make a label called Mother Block, which is so field blends of different Italian grape varieties. And they do a white, a red, a rosé and a skin contact. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, I think my biggest advice always is like find a great wine retailer. I, I think a lot of people are intimidated and feel like great wine shops are going to be very expensive they're going to walk in and nothing's going to be below 50 dollars. but i think most wine shops really do a good job of trying to have some budget budget bottles on the shelves so it's you know and then you know rather than going to just sort of like a grocery store certainly there are some grocery stores that have amazing wine selection so not to say all grocery stores but you know your kind of most basic place these will actually be very well curated you know They're like boutique independently owned wine shops, they're going to work really hard to make sure that they have good stuff at that affordable level. So, you know, that's always my number one piece of advice for pretty much any problem that ails you in the wine industry is go find a great retailer and they'll help you out.
0: Great answer. No, I I say the same thing. Cause yeah, even in Seattle, I know there's like, I think every wine shop has like a section that is like, this is the 15 and under, or this is the 20. And and because then they know, they know which things are the right value and, you know, can answer the question like you did of like, yeah, that's a tough price point, but here's where I point you to. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Jane, for joining for the podcast. I really enjoyed getting to learn from you and, and hear all this and very excited to see Australian wine pop up more across the U.S. Me too.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. Thanks again. Have a good one. So who's ready to drink some delicious Australian wine? Because that's all I can think about now. (laughs) Be sure to check out Jane's books, "Vignette: Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles, and her newest book, How to Drink Australian. You can find them on Amazon, but it would also be great to ask your local bookstore if they can order a copy for you. If you love this episode as much as I did, I would appreciate it if you could take a quick second to rate it and leave a review. And if you know a wine lover in your life, you know what I'm going to say. They should be listening to this podcast too, so please share it with them. In next week's episode, we'll be returning to France for part two. Yes, you've been very patiently waiting and I appreciate it. This will be part two of French Wine 101. We'll discuss the regions of Provence, languedoc Roussillon. Alsace, Beaujolais, and Jura. And hopefully my French pronunciation will be even better by then. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. And as a thank you, I'd like to share my free shopping guide, 15 wines under $15. Simply head to my website, corkandfizz.com, scroll down to the bottom and join my mailing list. Cheers!